This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Ah, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, come warm yourself by the fire. You are among friends. Uh, Ian Robertson and his young apprentice Jamie are here. Jamie's uh, training on the board this evening, and she'll step in when Ian is off gallivanting with his rockabilly band. Uh, Albert Vinzel is here running the HOA Hangout on Air. Uh, and if you want to watch the live stream on YouTube, just go to my Twitter feed at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett, and click on the HOA link you'll find in the tweet, uh, or at the top of the tweet, or, or feed, Twitter feed, rather. Uh, Frank Thayer is standing by to talk about the Aztec UFO incident. Uh, Sometimes it's referred to as the other Roswell. Uh, This is a case that has been for years uh, overshadowed by Roswell, uh, but that may be about to change. Uh, Get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca. Go to the radio page for the conspiracy program. And up at the top, you'll find the slide carousel where Albert and I have posted our usual assortment of tantalizing tidbits and news stories, feature articles, videos. Included in all that is, I want you to uh, check this out. It's the trailer uh, for Daniel Estulin's new documentary film. Daniel Estulin is the author of the true story of the Bilderberg Group. And he uh, he was recently nominated, get this, uh, Daniel, uh, who now lives in Spain, and uh, that book, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, a runaway bestseller across Europe. He has been asked to speak uh, to, the, uh, to, to parliaments uh, across Europe and uh, South America, met Fidel Castro, who read his book, was very interested in his book. Uh, so he has this new documentary film. It's just out. It's called Bilderberg the Movie. And the trailer is right there on the uh, on the slide carousel. Just click, and that'll uh, go right through to the link on YouTube. Have a look at that, and that may whet your appetite. I'm hoping because I'll be presenting the uh, Canadian theatrical premiere of this fine film in April 
and I'll be bringing Daniel to Toronto from Spain, and he'll introduce the film, deliver a 90-minute presentation after the film, and there'll be a meet-and-greet and a book signing and so forth. Details are upcoming. Just keep checking the live events page at strangeplanet.ca, but that's coming in April, and we'll have uh, specific dates and a venue and uh, ticket information, etc. Also posted on the slide carousel is an update on the Bank of Canada lawsuit. If you've been following this, uh, featuring constitutional lawyer Rocco Galati, and that is slowly inching towards a trial, I'm told. A Hollywood actress, Natasha Blasik, uh, is it Blasic or Blasic, Albert? Do we know? I, I think the first one. Uh, Blasic. Uh, the star of Paranormal Activity. Uh, did you read about this? She recently claimed to have enjoyed having sexual congress with a ghost. Uh, and Natasha Blasic uh, recently told the British television program this morning that the experience was, quote, really, really pleasurable, end quote. Uh, now, Natasha is coming on the program, right, Albert? When is that? The end of um, February, I think. February 28th. February 28th. All right. So, uh, Natasha Blasik from Paranormal Activity will ta- talk about her uh, her affair with a ghost. I wonder how her husband feels about that. Didn't you tell me she was married, Albert? She's married. She's married. All right. Well, uh, who am I to judge, right? Anyway, uh, all right. Let's get on to the main entree here, friends. Uh, in early March of 1948... An unidentified aerial craft was reported hovering over Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. And then about two weeks later, March 25th of 48, in Hart Canyon, a similar UFO was said to have made a controlled landing after being supposedly shot at by the military. And witnesses claim that something on the order of 16 dead humanoid figures were found near the craft or in the craft, and the craft itself was said to be about 99 feet in diameter, the largest UFO uh, to date. And the craft was alleged to be made of a a material impervious to all heat. Every account noted a hole in the craft's portal and described the humanoid figures as childlike in size. Other reports were detailed, describing the creatures as between 36 and 42 inches in height, weight around 40 pounds. It was alleged that shortly after the craft was downed, the military cleared the area of evidence, including the bodies, and subsequently taking it to Hangar 18, infamous Hangar 18, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Indeed, the belief in Hangar 18, which is said to house every downed UFO captured in the United States, was spawned by the Aztec UFO incident. Now, it has been, the Aztec incident, dismissed or was dismissed as a hoax for decades. But now, UFO experts Scott and Suzanne Ramsey and Frank Fair reveal the exact spot where the craft landed and show how the 100-foot diameter saucer was moved to a secret lab. Witnesses to the incident who were interviewed by the authors affirm that they were sworn to secrecy by the military. Frank Thayer, PhD, is a New Mexico native with extensive journalistic and journalism education experience. He's now a professor emeritus at New Mexico State University in Las Cruces. He has a a professional experience as a writer, editor, photographer, and educator. He is the co-author, along with Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, of The Aztec UFO Incident, The Case, Evidence, and Elaborate Cover-Up 
of one of the most perplexing crashes in history. Frank Thayer, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hey, Richard. I'm glad to talk to you. Let me first say that I lived in Toronto for 11 years. I taught journalism at Centennial College in Scarborough. Ah, and, uh, my old, that's I my lived, old alma mater. I went right. to Centennial College. I, I was the first department head in journalism out there in 1966. Well, we may have, well, we may have missed each other by about 25 years. <laughs> I, I guess so. Also tell your producers that I was a rockabilly singer in my youth, and if you check my website, frankthere.net, you can get some samples of my Presley-style singing. So I, I feel at home tonight. Well, 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 you should. You are at home. Come on in and uh, grab a stool, warm yourself by the fire, as we like to say. So, Frank, uh, why is it that, I mean, let's, for, let's first, uh, uh, the comparisons between Aztec and Roswell, I mean, they don't end with, you know, these both took place in the late 40s in New Mexico, uh, not too far from each other. Now, where, where is, first of all, Roswell or Corona in relation to Aztec? Okay, Roswell is in the eastern part of New Mexico, Mexico, about halfway up between uh, the Mexican border and the Colorado border. Aztec is up in the way northwest corner of the state, and it's called the Four Corners area because that's where Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico meet. So now you've got sort of a geographic lay of the land as to the differences. Uh, there's, you know, about three, three hundred miles between Corona and the, uh, the an Aztec, maybe 350. Right, right. Okay, so uh, now, of course, Roswell is, is the summer of 47, and this is March of 48, so not, about eight, nine months later. Right. Um, why is it, do you suppose, that the Aztec incident, I mean, we're talking about scores of witnesses. We're talking about 16, possibly 16 alien bodies uh, military, you know, combing the area, cover up, and so forth. And yet, I'm guessing many listeners will be well familiar with with Roswell, but not so much with Aztec. Why has Aztec uh, been in the shadow of Roswell for so long? That's a long story, but we got a few minutes now. They say that the Aztec incident is like a bag of pretzels. There's twists and turns in it. And remember that Roswell was announced in 47, but it only lasted one day. People forget that nobody knew about Roswell, actually, until probably 1978, 79, and the first book that came out, Roswell Incident, in 1980. Aztec, however, there was a book about that in 1950. You'd think that, well, the, the cat's out of the bag. But it didn't turn out that way because the governments decided that we can't let anybody know about this. And they set about uh, destroying the reputations of everybody connected to that uh, revelation. And we've, the book by Frank Scully in 1950 was behind the flying saucers. And nobody paid too much attention to it, even though it sold 50,000 copies. It seemed so outrageous. Back then, uh, we assumed that Earthlings were the only life in the universe, the only intelligent life. And that's the way people thought. So 33% in 1950 said they believe that there's something real about flying saucers. Today, it's well over half 
of the population says, we know that something out there is coming from somewhere else. As a matter of fact, the more educated you are, the more likely you are to accept the reality. So as far as the hoax goes, how did that start? Well, you got to go back to 1950 when an oil man named Silas Newton called Scientist X. He went on stage at the University of Denver in Denver, Colorado, and talked to a Science 101 class. And he said, and we've got the tape recording of his lecture in 1950. It was on a wire recorder. We've got the whole thing on CD now. And he got up in front of a bunch of students and said, there is such a thing as a flying saucer. Can you imagine how that must have hit them back way back then? And he was hustled off the stage after he finished talking. And all of a sudden, the Air Force showed up in town saying, who was that man and where do we find him? And they had a tough time finding him. But he knew Silas Newton knew Frank Scully. And he also knew the scientists who worked on, on the saucer. He knew them because he was a geophysicist. And those people who were his friends before the war, um, well, they worked on secret projects after the war at Los Alamos. And they were the ones who examined the saucer. 1949, a, a year after the saucer was recovered at Aztec, they told Scully and Silas Newton, they thought, well, the government's going to reveal this in a few months. We can tell you about it. All of a sudden, a year later, when Scully's book came out, Scully wrote this. People, men who would tell their story for nothing in 1949, would not tell it for $20 million in 1950. And that's what started the rot. And, But if I can go a little further, let me tell you about a fellow named J.P. Kahn. Kahn, C-A-H-N. What an unfortunate was, name. <laughs> <laughs> what's in a name? Uh, was a rich guy. He was born rich, never had to work a day in his life. And he heard about this, and he went to Frank Scully. He wanted to buy the story of the Aztec saucer. Scully wouldn't sell. He wrote a book instead. Frank Scully was famous. He was a variety columnist. He was he wrote books. He was very well known in, in his time. And so Khan was sort of left standing there at the altar with no bride. And it he was a very vindictive man. He okay. decided right then and there, I'm going to get him. All right, let me just jump in here. Uh, Frank Thayer is with us. The Aztec UFO incident. We'll, we'll uh, leave the story there just momentarily. We'll come back and, and find out why this incredible UFO crash and retrieval of a large saucer, including 16 dead aliens, why it was dismissed as a hoax for so long back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. 
Uh, just want to uh, want to do a quick shout out to those watching uh, the live stream, the hangout on air. Uh, King Akira and Neo and you betcha uh, and and others. Welcome. All right, Frank Thayer is here. The Aztec UFO incident, the case, evidence, an elaborate cover-up of one of the most perplexing crashes in history. And we're discussing why this case was dismissed as a hoax for decades. And, uh, Frank, as you were describing, there seemed to be uh, a bit of a uh, uh, a vendetta here. Uh, Two people that were trying to write about this incident, one, Frank Scully, the other is kind of a, a dilettante or a debutante. Uh, who was jealous of Frank Scully. Is that pretty much it? You've got it. You get, use the right word, vendetta. J.P. Kahn, we were talking about just a few minutes ago, he, because he couldn't have the story, he decided he wanted to show that Frank Scully was duped with a false story. He went to the FBI. He wanted to find out about this Silas Newton guy and see if he could get him in trouble and ruin his reputation. And the FBI decided that they were going to play ball with him, and they tried to find anything they could to destroy Silas Newton and his his compatriot, Leo Gebauer. And it took them a couple of years to do it, but finally they got charges against him in a Denver district court for fraud. And he was Silas Newton was a rich oil man, and you can't tell me that oil men don't have sharp deals, because they do. And, but this is something that should have been a civil case, and they turned it into a, a, a case in a criminal case and found Silas Newton guilty. And there was things about doodlebugs, doodlebugs, which are supposed to determine things under the ground. Today we accept that as, as natural, but back then there were a lot of phony devices like that. And, but they never put Newton in jail. They made him pay court costs, but no fine. But what it led to was, of course, an article in True Magazine, which was a men's magazine in the 50s, uh, Flying Saucers and the Mysterious Little Men by J.P. Kahn. I've got to give Kahn this. He's a good writer. He's an excellent writer. But what he did was destroy the reputation of Silas Newton in print. Never mentioned, didn't really mention much about Flying Saucers and Little Men. But what he did by talking about this court case or this fraud that supposedly Newton engaged in, he ruined his reputation. And therefore, faulty logic, because this guy was in court and found guilty of fraud, Aztec had to be a hoax. And it rested that way for decades. Uh, Today, we look back and say, that's impossible. But then again, People accepted that Roswell was a weather balloon for a long time as well. Right, right. So there you have it. Now, now Silas Newton, was he one of the, the witnesses? No. Silas Newton um, never saw a flying saucer as far as I could research and looking at his autobiography. But he knew the scientists who worked on the saucer after it was taken to Los Alamos. And they told him all sorts of stuff about it. And... Scully referred to the scientists, eight or nine of them, as composite Dr. G, G-E-E. And he was not one man, he was eight or nine people. And so they were going to tell Scully all about this because they were sure the government was going to tell us the truth. And this is a perfect show for that. The government never did. And i got to digress here and say the government never will tell about this. This is a secret that will remain forever. 
Uh, in the story. Right. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'm not holding my breath for disclosure uh, either. And <laughs> <laughs> John Podesta, uh, you know, regardless, it's just not going to happen. Um, and we don't need it from the government, quite frankly. However, uh, so the, the witnesses, how did you and the Ramses uh, track them down? First of all, how many were they there uh, present in, at Hart Canyon in 48? And how many did you track down? We have to give Scott Ramsey top credit. Here's a guy who, starting in 1986, became, not obsessed, but he was concentrating on this. He spent, by estimate, maybe half a million bucks in 30 years tracking down as many of these people as he could. At first, of course, nobody knew how many witnesses there were. But he found two live witnesses. Now, remember that the government came onto the Mesa on the morning of March 25th, and they separated everybody and swore them to secrecy. In 1948, people trusted the government and believed whatever the government was going to tell them. After the most destructive war in human history and a Cold War starting up, you trusted the government. Uh, You can't imagine that today, but it was the truth back then. So, but these two witnesses were older, much older, and they, were, they had had health problems, and they, they were willing to tell their story. Scott Ramsey located both of them and interviewed them. They didn't know each other. They were on the Mesa, but they didn't know each other. And they told story to Scott Ramsey. We have one of them, Doug Noland. We have his story on tape and on CD now. And you know what? They told identical stories right down to the number of people on the Mesa, how many cops were up on the Mesa that day, a helicopter that came by. And Doug Nolan got up and walked around on the saucer. What 18, 19-year-old guy doesn't do stuff like that? Right. Hey, guys, watch this. I'm just thinking you mentioned the helicopter. That must have been almost as strange a sight as the the crashed UFO itself, a helicopter in 1948. He said he never saw a helicopter before. He didn't know if, what was more peculiar to him, the helicopter or this 100-foot disc on the top of the mesa. Very good. And, and, and this is a, this Hart Canyon, Hart Canyon Road, is this a lonely stretch of highway? I mean, how did, how, did, uh, how did so many people get out there so quickly? Well, this is a, uh, a nest of oil fields and... There, there are thousands of oil oil rigs in the Four Corners area. So they had oil being pumped out all along this. This is a dirt road. You leave Aztec, get on a dirt road, and go 11 miles out into the, in the boondocks to get to this mesa. I've been there. And so what happened was the saucer was seen by cops before dawn southeast of Aztec. And if they were, these cops were on a, a paved road, and they saw this glowing disc go over them, wobbling, headed northwest. A rancher uh, further up the road saw this thing come over his house, and it went, started going north. And all of a sudden, it collided with the cliff of a mesa just over the, the creek from his house. But it didn't crash. It lifted up and went on north. This rancher named Archuleta, he went down to a store where they had a phone and where they could get to him. Again, New Mexico, 1948, private phones were very rare. 
and he made a long-distance call to Albuquerque to Kirtland Air Force Base to say he saw this strange thing. They asked him what it was and told him not to worry about it. Now, the cops kept following this thing, and they were able to get to Hart Canyon Mesa by whatever means they did. And around dawn, the oil field workers came, came out, not because of the saucer, but because there was smoldering fire on the Mesa area, and the oil company was afraid that there might be danger to their drip tanks where they were storing oil. So the oil field workers got there, they went up on the Mesa, and there was smoldering brush indeed, but no danger to the oil. And why, yes. why do we believe, why have we come to believe that this craft was fired upon by the military? That's speculation. Uh, in our book, we try not to, to speculate too much, and because that ends up being expectoration. But <laughs> I, I think that the, when they got up on the disc, Doug Nolan did, he got up close. There was a, it's a flat disc with a dome in the center. He goes up to the dome, and he sees circles that are portholes except that they look like mirrored sunglasses in a time before there were mirrored sunglasses. He gets up close to it, and he sees inside the cupola, and he sees bodies slumped over a console. But there was also one tiny hole the size of a quarter in one of those portholes. And it's presumed that either there was decompression or whatever that killed everybody inside. But that's how they got into the craft, by the way. There was this quarter-sized hole in a porthole, and we don't know for sure whether it was the oil field workers or the military that actually discovered this, but they got a long pole and stuck it through this little hole, and they ended up poking some knobs inside the, the cabin, and the saucer opened up. It looked like a single piece of metal, and all of a sudden, it opened up. Now... You saw the movie, we all saw the movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Right. And remember when the saucer opened up? That's very much how Nolan described it. It just opened up, and they were able to get inside and see uh, the dead guys. And the military apparently were the ones that brought out the bodies and put them on the ground and then took them away to Los Alamos. How soon did the military arrive? Uh, there's mixed things they said three to four hours and which means that they were probably already on their way uh when the uh the young oil field workers were up there and the ranchers were up there but they they say something like three to four hours and the, the military arrived in great numbers to take over from albuquerque or roswell what, oh they were from roswell uh army field and we don't know where they came from. Some people say they came from Camp Hale, Colorado, which was maybe 40 miles north of the New Mexico border. Uh, but they certainly were more efficient than the Roswell people were. Well, they, they had a, a had Yeah, exactly. They learned a lot. They probably had a response team now all ready to go. I bet they did. Because they knew more than we did about what was really going on in the skies. How did the witnesses say the military behaved in their presence? Were they roughhousing them? Were they ordering them off the craft? Or were they just saying, stand back and let us take care of this? From what we can tell, the military was not rough, 
but they were very firm. They separated people into one and groups of one and two and debriefed them to explain to them that they could never speak of this for the rest of their lives, that this was national security and that they had to leave the Mesa now and not come back. And so most of them did that. And most of them never said anything for the next 50 years. Uh, however, there was one, one person who did talk, and that was a preacher. His name was Solon Brown. He was a Baptist preacher who had a church north of the New Mexico border in Mancos, Colorado. But he, had, he did missionary work. He traveled all around the Four Corners area to help people. And he was out doing his work, and he saw all these vehicles headed down this dirt road, and he thought, well, maybe there's been an accident, and he was going to help out. And he ended up on the Mesa, and what he saw there, even though he was debriefed and told to keep his mouth shut, he went to the church or his hometown of Mancos, Colorado, and that night, and he called his deacon to the house and the deacon's son, and he said, I have to tell you this, and he said... Uh, the deacon's son is the one who told the story to Scott, and he said, my, my whole view of the universe has changed, and he was actually weeping, and this kid remembered he'd never seen a grown man cry before, and this Baptist preacher was so shaken by what he saw on the Mesa that he had to tell somebody, and that was the last person he spoke to about it. How about the other uh, witnesses that saw the bodies? Uh, I, I, because I'm remembering... Uh, Don Schmidt telling me, a Roswell investigator, talking about, I believe it was the uh, attorney general or the uh, assistant attorney general in New Mexico at the time who happened to be at the Roswell Army Field on another right. matter when he saw the bodies Correct. from the, the Roswell crash. And he went home and was absolutely in in turmoil and, you know, wanted a drink and said and just kept muttering, they're not human, they're not human. Uh, imagine That's exactly I mean, what sh- the way Schmidt recorded it. Yeah, and this guy, he was, he drank whiskey out of the bottle because it was it was devastating to him. What he saw, he knew he was dealing with something that uh, couldn't be. So the other witnesses that you interviewed, or that the Ramses interviewed, that saw the bodies, how did they describe them? The description, and again, the way we read the description first was in in Frank Scully's book. They were little guys, and you described it succinctly at the beginning of the show, that they were 38, 42 inches tall. They were like little people. They were perfectly formed. They had slightly larger heads, slightly larger eyes, not much in the way of a nose. Uh, They didn't have ear flaps, and they were dressed in one-piece coverall-type suits with with buttons on it. No, No rank insignia or anything, and that's how they were described except that they were, as far as their color, they seemed to be dark brown as though they were charred or overheated in some way, almost as though they were microwaved. And that's what led to the speculation about the radar. We had powerful radar in New Mexico at that time for the, before the distant early warning line was, was set up way up north in Canada. And uh, these, these radars were so powerful that they could bring down birds in flight. So, uh, well, and some I don't of know if this, some, this is all very much speculation. Of course, and some have speculated that that may have been responsible for the two discs that crashed near Corona as well, about yeah, nine months earlier. You got it. All right, we'll come back. Frank Thayer, PhD, co-author of the Aztec UFO Incident. 
This should be bigger than Roswell. It should be bigger than Roswell. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Frank Thayer stays with us. The Aztec UFO incident, the case evidence and elaborate cover-up of one of the most perplexing crashes in history. Uh, Frank, I'm trying to figure out what would be more difficult. Um, you know, clearing out the debris field at Corona when you've got tiny pieces of, of the craft um, strewn all over the place, or you've got, at, in the case of Aztec, a 100-foot diameter craft. Uh, you got to move that out on a big truck. I mean, how, how did the heck did they get that thing out of there? There's a full chapter in the book on this because it is a perplexing problem. It's an engineering problem. But Frank Scully gives us a clue as to what happened because Frank Scully says the saucer came apart in three pieces. It was held together. It was a modular craft held together by internal pins. Now, I don't know how that works, but apparently that's what it was, that it could come apart in three pieces. And they used what they called the dragon wagon, which was a, uh, a battlefield carrier they used to haul tanks. So you, you could put this one-third of the saucer, sort of like a sail, uh, vertically on the dragon wagon and head down the canyon from, from Hart Canyon, and uh, you can get to, to Los Alamos with very few people getting a chance to see what you were hauling. And uh, were there, were there, I mean, I know the military swooped in pretty quickly and, and there wasn't a debris field, but did anyone collect any souvenirs? Was there an I-beam, you know, a la the Marcel family, anything like that? <laughs> this is the thing. Remember, this saucer was a controlled landing. It settled down on the Mesa. It was undamaged. And so, as far as we know, uh, no relics were, were harvested from it. They were able to get the whole thing back to Los Alamos, whereas at Corona, they did have to pick up tiny little pieces, and they did that for years after Roswell. They did not want anybody to have a piece of extraterrestrial material. And Aztec was a lot easier for them in that sense. Uh, did anyone describe... Uh, hieroglyphics uh, or any symbols on the craft, the way that Marcel uh, talked about, uh, the, you know, the, the little uh, symbol on the, the little I-beam. Interesting you should mention that, Richard. We have one source says that they found what was described as a book in the craft. It looked like parchment pages, and the, uh, the content of it was in hieroglyphics, as they described, and they sent that to Washington to be deciphered, and as far as we know, uh, no results ever came from it. Uh, you, it's hard to crack a code when there's nothing com- common with, 
with your your own species. Right, right. Let me get back to the aliens for a moment. Uh, so you've got the 16 little alien corpses. Um, now, we'll, again, going back to Roswell, of course, we had uh, um, uh, Glenn Dennis, the funeral uh, director in, in Roswell, receiving a call asking for tiny coffins from Roswell Air Force, uh, Air, Airfield, rather, Army Airfield. Um, and I'm trying to remember whether there was a request for dry ice in there as well. Anything, I mean, how did they handle the bodies? How did they, you know, what do you do with 16 alien bodies? How do you preserve them in the hot, well, it's not hot in March, but, you know, you've got to put them on a flatbed and dry for hours. How do you preserve them? With Roswell, it was in the middle of July, and in March, it's still not that hot in that northwestern corner. But we have, right now, we don't have enough data to really say what happened, but obviously... They were prepared for it. I would assume that they would have body bags at that point, and they would seal them up and take uh, take the bodies uh, to Los Alamos. And then, and since I know you're you're ahead of me here, they would transport them to Wright Patterson Air Force Base uh, at Dayton, Ohio, which is, they had cryogenic facilities there, and very likely that's where the bodies went. But you know, they were more valuable than gold. And the actual, I mean, how do you get that, again, I know you, they, they sort of uh, took it apart, but how do you get that craft back to Wright-Patterson? Uh, and are, are, there, are we able to connect any dots? Were there people that were involved in transporting the craft uh, that, that uh, you know, were willing to talk about it? Oh, I think the tape goes blank there. We don't know. Once it got to Los Alamos, uh, it goes under the, the veil of secrecy, and uh, we have no idea what happened. However, since the book came out on December 15th, we have run into a, a witness who knows about the saucer being at Wright-Patterson. And that story still got to be researched and, and put together. But it was in a building, and not, it wasn't Hangar 18, actually. Uh, as far as we know, it's a building uh, numbered 829, 829, and that that may be the first chapter in the third book, room 829 or building 829. We'll see. But this means that they got it there somehow, and with the, I have been, I've traveled the highways in, in New Mexico and Texas, and I've seen convoys carrying missiles, covered missiles going down uh, the interstate. So I know that the government does transport highly secret material in convoys, and there's no way of knowing what's, what's on those, those, uh, those trucks. Hidden in plain sight. All right, Frank, we'll uh, take a time out, come back, and uh, find out how you were ap- actually able to locate the exact landing spot, the Aztec UFO incidents. Don't go away. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Truth will set you free. 
But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. That's right. Really tick you off. Ain't that the truth? Frank Thayer, Ph.D., one of the co-authors, along with Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, of the Aztec UFO incident. And I, I'll say it again. This should be bigger than Roswell. Uh, I mean, the uh, just the absolute impact of this is just incredible. We have a a a, 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 a a craft that's almost in pristine condition, crash lands. We have witnesses crawling all over this thing, inside and out, 16 bodies. Um, now, the, in the, again, let's go back to the Roswell incident. We had the, the sheriff on the ground there who, uh, as it turns out, because of the way he was sort of forced to handle some of the locals, he, was, he, he felt terrible and refused to run for re-election. Um, any sort of that heavy-handedness in and around Aztec where you had either Secret Service or local law enforcement threatening to plant people in the desert, for example. I mean, how serious were these threats and, 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 uh, and how did they gain the silence of the witnesses? You know, Scott talked to a lot of people and apparently from all that we can determine, there was never any kind of serious threats such as you had in Roswell. And definitely in Roswell, there were death threats. Uh, they'll find your, your bones in the desert. And what they did, they appealed to patriotism. They just said that this is a very important national security issue. You, you are not able to talk about this ever again. And it worked. There were very, very little conversation. And some people would say, well, I never talked about it or they refused. One fellow was who went out there, he came home, and he told his wife, uh, I didn't leave the house today, and we'll never speak of this again. And and that, that was how, how firm he was. So the military probably had developed negotiating skills to make sure that people understood. Um, maybe the, the threats were veiled, I don't know, but they didn't talk. And that's why it remained buried for so long. Wow. They really learned their lessons from Roswell, didn't they? I mean, they went to school. Yes, indeed. And oh, you were saying a little while ago, well, uh, how, did they, how did Ramsey find the place? Yes, that's the next question. And there's question. an interesting story yeah. here. Frank Scully never came to New Mexico, as far as we know. He didn't go to Aztec, but he was told the story by the scientists and by Silas Newton, and he described where it was within 500 miles of Denver. It was on a high, rocky plateau. It was um, so many miles from Ros- from Aztec, and so on. And a fellow named William Steinman, in 1982, went into a bookstore in in California, and he found a used copy of Behind the Flying Saucers. And he was so intrigued by the story in Frank Scully's book, he got in his car and drove across two states to get to New Mexico. And he began poking around to find out where uh, this could have happened. And he, he found the Mesa. And it matched Scully's description exactly. And William Steinman brought out his own book in 1986. And I didn't find the book, that book, until 2006. And Scott Ramsey hadn't seen the book either. 
But it, he wrote, Steinman wrote, UFO crash at, at Aztec, a well-kept secret, in which he was saying that he thought it was real. But in 1986, when Steinman published his book, Scott Ramsey was doing business in New Mexico. Scott Ramsey is an electric wire guy. He sells the kind of wires you use to, to wind generators all over the country. And he was an Aztec selling wire for a generating station. And somebody was talking about going to the old crash site. He said, what old crash site? And they, they told him, well, well, it's just a story. And he decided he wanted to find out. He just got a bug in his bonnet. And he found, went out that road, found Hart Canyon Mesa, which when you get out there, it's very distinctive. And he went up on there, and that began, he says he's been on the Mesa a couple hundred times since 1986. That's how interested he is in it. And there you go. And... Did any of the witnesses go back out there with, with either you or the Ramses? Uh, it's now a very well-known place. It wasn't back then. And when I went up there, we were out on the Mesa, and it's a wonderful flat place, big enough for a 100-foot saucer to land with a little room to spare. And right at the cliff, you can go over the edge of the cliff and look down and see for miles. And when I was up there... Uh, had my picture taken, and I use it on the back cover of the book, at the plaque, a bicyclist came up there. The bicyclists come out that road, and it's become sort of a tourist spot, I think. And But it was one of those things that some people knew where it was, and other people said it never happened. Aztec is like Kecksburg, is like Roswell. Half the population says, ah, no, nah, nothing ever happened there. The other half says, yes, I know it happened. And the community's divided. Isn't that interesting? And and uh, Aztec has not uh, sort of turned this into kind of a um, you know a, a corny tourist attraction the way that Roswell has. I'm gathering. Not yet. No. And I've been to the uh, the annual thing at Roswell, and it is uh, a carnival atmosphere there. And I I would hope that Aztec would promote this, but also keep it on the level. Uh, Scott Ramsey in the, in the 2000s held symposiums at the, at the Aztec Library. He brought in Stanton Friedman and other notables to talk to the groups. And uh, we're hoping this year to, to meet on the Mesa on March 25th, 2016, for an anniversary celebration, inviting the mayors of Farmington and Aztec and all the people who've been involved over the years and maybe do some talks at the libraries in Farmington and Aztec, just sort of to get this started again on, in the right direction. Now, Stanton Friedman, the, the original Roswell investigator, and he wrote the, yes. the, uh, the foreword to, to your book, uh, what does, how does he contrast and compare Aztec with Roswell, and does he think it's a more significant case? In talking with him, at first, for many years, he thought... He kept Aztec in his gray basket. He calls it the gray basket. And it was only after Scott presented him with the research that he began to see that it was an actual event. And since the 2012 book, he is definitely in the camp. He knows it's real. And to have his um, imprimatur 
is is really important because he's the dean and most respected person in the field. What happens once the craft uh, gets to Wright-Patterson and we start, uh, or Silas, the oil man, starts hearing from some of these scientist friends that are working on it? What what were they doing? Were they back engineering? What, what, what were they doing? I think that what they were doing, as far as we can tell, they were just trying to figure out what it was and what it did. For example, there's no means of propulsion. Uh, we now know that it's some kind of uh, magnetic field propulsion that uh, powers these things. There's no thrusters, there's no propellers, there's no jets, there's no rockets. And this, of course, is of the ultimate interest to any nation who wants to use flying saucers and their mode of propulsion for military purposes. So the brightest guys in the nation were working on this. And I'm sure that they went to Wright-Patterson as well. Uh, But I don't think that they were able to instantly change everything. Something that I know you've thought of, too, and that is six months after Roswell, the transistor appeared. Now, that was a revolution of of technology. I'll say. And I mean, one one day, I mean, there was no transitional technology. One day it correct. was tubes, and the next day, solid state, just like turn of a dime. Mm-hmm. And we've had a lot of other things like that. It's been a logarithmic expansion of technology since then. And what about the so bodies? I really believe that there was um, that there's some kind of technology that seeded all the developments that we've had since that time. Right, and and the bodies. Do you think they're still on ice there? I would say they have to be. They are too important to just throw away or bury. And in cryogenic suspension, they can be kept forever. We don't know. We've well. Leonard Stringfield, I'm sure you know about him, he published a lot of material about autopsies and, and little men. Right, right. Uh, unfortunately, I know, I've read his stuff, I think he's on the money, but he never revealed his sources, and that's, uh, that's not good for a researcher. No. I understand why he didn't reveal the names, but obviously they've done a lot of studies on the bodies, and they know a lot more than they're ever going to tell us. Then there, of course, uh, there is the the legendary story of Jack or of um, um, Jackie Gleason, uh, yes. who was very good friends with Richard Nixon. They were they were golfing partners, and Gleason swears up and down that he was taken to this base and saw bodies. Perhaps these were the that Aztec was in bodies. Florida. So, with sixteen bodies, they could afford to spread them around. That's right, like they do with the pandas in the zoos across North America. Ah, excellent. Uh, so where where do you go from here? Uh, you know, is there a documentary in the offing? I mean, this really, as I say, this needs to be, uh, you know, placed right up there with Roswell. So what's the next step? Well, there are producers who've been in touch with us uh, suggesting that there should be a a full-fledged documentary and even movie-length documentary because they realize that this is a big story. In some ways, it is far more compelling than Roswell, even though I think Roswell was the first case that proved itself. And as you know, 
How many cases do you need to prove to say that there's such a thing as extraterrestrial visitation? You only need one that you can prove. But Aztec is number two for sure. And I think that there's going to be uh, some documentaries done, and it's just a matter of uh, lining up the uh, the talent and getting the uh, the approvals and uh, budgeting. These things cost money, as you know. How many witnesses are still with us? Uh, I would say probably nobody at this stage, from what I know, all the ranchers, the oil men, have all aged and died. Because uh, look at it, what? It was 60, 60 some years ago. When 68, they were, yeah. If they were 20, they'd been in their 80s at the very youngest. And uh, working on the oil fields is not good for your health, I don't think. So I, I don't think that there are many witnesses that could be alive today. Although we do know one guy, if we could only find him, his name was Donald Bass. Donald Bass supposedly worked on the recovery when he was a young guy. He was in the Air Force. And there's chapter three of the book talks about him and his friend from Aztec who got the story from him. All right, well, let's we find him. <laughs> let's find him. Listen, we are out of time, yeah. Frank. Um, uh, Scott but... Ramsey is hot on the trail. I Trust me on that. And Scott Ramsey is a bulldog when it comes to research. Well, congratulations on the Aztec UFO incident. Thank you for your time. I enjoyed our conversation. Frank, good to meet you. Me too. The Aztec UFO Incident. All right, the website, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T. And as always, follow the truth. Listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A very special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, here in Toronto, AM 740 and 96.7 FM. Uh, Hello to those of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations, uh, the podcasts, the Zoomer and Conspiracy Show apps, uh, TalkZone.com, wherever and however you're listening to this program, I bid thee welcome. Uh, Our good friend uh, Paul Grisillo, a futurist and founder of the Merlin Project, is standing by to discuss his amazing predictive tool, uh, Time Tracks. Uh, And he's he's come prepared with some Time Tracks. Uh, We'll discuss some of the newsmakers in 2016, of course, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, chief among them. Uh, We'll get around probably to Vladimir Putin and uh, perhaps uh, North Korea. Uh, Before that, let me remind U.S. listeners that the first three seasons of my television program, The Conspiracy Show, now available on Hulu and, of course, Amazon.com. All three seasons uh, continue to air across Canada on Vision TV, and season four is uh, signed, sealed, and delivered. We're just waiting for an air date. Uh, Now, just before showtime, uh, Paul Garcia sent me an interesting quote uh, from Stephen Hawking. Uh, I want to share that with you because it's apropos. The whole history of science has been the gradual realization that events do not happen in an arbitrary manner, but that they reflect a certain underlying order, which may or may not be divinely inspired. It's that underlying order uh, that Paul Garcia and physicist Dr. George Hart appear to have tapped into with their software-based forecasting technology. Paul Garcia was a nationally respected futurist and a longtime student of traditional and esoteric predictive systems. His 40 years of research into the uh, cyclical sciences and subsequent collaboration with Dr. George Hart directly resulted in the creation of the Merlin Projects. His clients include many prominent business people, politicians, and celebrities. Let me give you some contact info for the Merlin Project. You're going to want to jot these down because I'm thinking after you hear about this, you're going to want to get in touch. The email is merlinproject at gmail.com. Merlin, M-E-R-L-I-N, project at gmail.com. The website, projectmerlin.com. And timetracks.org, Time. T-I-M-E, tracks, T-R-A-K-S, no C, just time, tracks, T-R-A-K-S, dot org. And you can also call 866-298-7688, 866-298-7688. Paul Garcia, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine, Richard. Good to talk to you again. Likewise, likewise. You know, I, I have to tell you something. That has me intensely amused. Um, I cranked up uh, your uh, your own website, and up in the left hand corner it says AM seven forty. Right. What you don't know, I don't think, is that a number of my friends, as well as myself, started out in radio in the middle sixties, 
And the first commercial radio station we all worked for on Long Island was WGSM at 7.40 a.m. Aha. Aren't, oh, there's that there's that orderly. Uh, that's right. That's that's the synchronicity that we laugh about. That's what Hawking is it talking goes, about. It goes on everywhere, all the time, and we just don't pay attention to it because we were never taught that there are rules involved. And because we were never taught that, we deal with it as coincidental and just you know so, something to to chuckle over. But what Dr. Hart and I have found over now 30 years of doing this is that it's, you know, coincidence is just a, a term for a set of laws we don't quite completely understand yet, and that they're very organized. Uh, unfortunately, we don't get a chance to see that very often, but maybe a little later I'll, I'll share with you a little story that, uh, that he and I have uh, that, that just shows this kind of coincidental stuff with the kind of magnetism and uh, attention that you never get a chance to see. Uh, uh, Joseph Farrell um, has uh, detailed in a couple of his books anyway about these law, the, the study of cycles. And uh, Herbert Hoover, much maligned president, but actually I believe it was Hoover, uh, may have been Calvin Coolidge, but I think it was Hoover, actually had, had funded this sort of a think tank to study, this is back in the 30s, these long-term cyclical trends uh, that are present in nature and, and uh, is, I mean, are you familiar with, with Hoover's work or that think tank's work on cycles? And does well, that have anything to do with your time tracks? I'm familiar with something that I believe was called the Institute for the Study of Cycles. That's it. That's the one. Um, and it, it does go back to about the 1930s. It's not something I'm really familiar with because uh, the, 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 the course of direction that I followed in reaching where we are, where Dr. Hart and I uh, are now with this, uh, followed a different path. Um, uh, but nevertheless, there, 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 there are cycles in our, in, our, in our solar system that are responsible for everything from ocean tides to uh, the, the way we calculate time. Uh, we don't realize that because we don't pay attention to it other than uh, as wall calendars or uh, wristwatches, or actually most of us now have cell phones, so we don't wear wristwatches anymore. Right, right. Uh, but um, time, uh, as Dr. Hart and I have discovered over, over these 30 years, um, is, a, is really a very much more organized thing than we think of it as. Uh, we, we deal with time as a kind of an abstraction it's something to uh, to plot days and months and years, but we don't think of it as having any kind of organized function to it, that anything is essentially attributable to it. But let me give you a little example. Um, and, and what we're doing with the, to this, this Merlin technology is, is sort of an offshoot of this. Um, if you were a shipbuilder, um, you would take a look at the ocean tides uh, at the time that you want to launch that ship. Now, theoretically, you could launch it at low tide and, you know, and pull it across the mud flats to wherever the water is right. and hopefully not ruin the bottom of the ship in the process. <laughs> but you could do that. Right. It would make more sense, however, to look at this timetable, what we call tide tables, right. and see when high tide was going to be so as to uh, you know, eliminate all that extra labor in moving the boat. 
if on the other hand you were a clam digger and you wanted to go out and dig clams and not have them float away on you, you would look to see when low tide is so that you could plan your activity of digging clams when it was the most appropriate. Well, that's essentially what we've discovered with Merlin, that, there, that there's no such thing as good times or bad times. There are appropriate moments for certain activities and inappropriate moments for those. Uh, an appropriate moment, for instance, for the launching of a business would not be the same kind of moment that you would want to employ if you were having elective surgery done, because there, one is an active moment and one is not. Right, right. Um, and what we've done with Merlin is turned clock time, essentially, into a kind of structured picture, a graphic, of what time not only looks like at any given moment, but what it's going to look like as, as time passes. So in other words, what time is going to look like on a particular moment in the future from a particular moment that you measured from the past. Mm -hmm. And each past moment has its own genesis and its own pattern into the future. So in other words, uh, instances of time uh, have a different picture to them. And if you, if you essentially follow that path, that pathway into the future that a particular moment generates, you'll find that the, the occasion of highs and lows uh, of active, mo <coughs> excuse me, active moments and, and less active ones is unique to the starting moment. And no other moment is going to have that exact same pattern. So if it was so, a person, the starting moment would be their birth. It would be birth. Or if it's a country, uh, it would be the, the, the birth of the country. It would, be, it would be the date that they had their Declaration of Independence, for instance. Yeah. Right, right. Um, uh, and, and all other activities in our lives that are, have any importance to them all have what Dr. Hart and I like to call genesis moments. They all had a beginning point. And that beginning point tells you a lot about what's going to happen in the future in terms of where the activity is going to cluster. You can see how far into the future things are going to get busy or different. And although we can't tell with any, with any great accuracy whether that moment in the future that we see as being busy is going to be good busy or bad busy, uh, we can see where it is in much the same way as we now have these global positioning satellites, and if you happen to have a GPS device in your car or on your person when you're out hiking, you can determine where you are within uh, as little as, as a meter or two from where you actually uh, are standing. And that can tell you how to get back to where you started or, or keep you from getting lost, uh, allow you to find uh, locations of towns and other things that you might be looking for. Um, and that GPS system tells you, uh, as I said, with a high degree of accuracy, exactly where on the planet you are. Well, what we're doing and have been doing now on and off for 30 years is we've developed a computer program that can actually tell you from a given moment in the past, a specific moment right down to the uh, hour and minute that 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 moment that frozen moment of time uh, the starting moment is 
we can tell you where in the future in terms of time, how far into the future, how many days or months or years is going to take before that moment that you started with is going to go through a tremendous change and perhaps send you off on an entirely different direction in terms of circumstance than it was when you started. All so right. That you can see where that moment goes through the changes and how big those changes are going to be. Paul Gersio, futurist and founder of the Merlin Project, right here on The Conspiracy Show. He'll stay with us. Hope you'll do the same. We'll reconvene on the other side, discuss the time tracks of some pretty prominent people. I think you'll want to be sticking around for that as well. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Paul Gersio stays with us, a futurist, founder of the Merlin Project. And uh, let's talk some uh, about some uh, time tracks here, Paul. And uh, can I direct them to the Coast site? Because you were on... In fact, it's a, I was going to ask you whether I could do that. Yeah, you know what? We're, it's, we're all in the Coast family <laughs> yeah, that, here. That, so that, Yeah, that's the easiest way to do this. Because uh, to describe these without being able to see them, uh, the, the whole concept sounds bizarre until you actually see what they look like. So... Uh, yes, I would. I would definitely do that. And uh, you may have the URL, but I know that if you go to go to the coast the homepage, and you look look for the search engine on that homepage, and just type in Merlin presidential time tracks, you will get a, a huge list of all the people who thought they were going to be president. Right. So, Okay. Yes, so, and that is slowly uh, winnowing down, at least on the Republican true. side. No more Scott Walker. No more Bobby Jindal. No more. Uh, Jim Gilmore or Lindsey Graham. However, there's still a lot. And, and let me ask you, I haven't opened up uh, some of those that I just mentioned, but on the Republican side, if we were to open up Jim Gilmore, Lindsey Graham, Bobby Jindal, do we see a noticeable absence of activity uh, sort of in their time tracks for Jan 2016? Well, here's what you look for. Um, and this is what we do when we look at them. We run them up and we run them back about a year or two into the past. So we would look from about 2014 on. And we would look to see whether there is any significant activity in the graph. Now, the graph I'm talking about, it's a little bit like sheet music. Mm-hmm. I mean, and even if you're not a musician, if you look at a piece of sheet music and you, and you see a, a lot of notes all jumbled together, you know that that portion of a, of a song or symphony is going to be louder and more raucous than if they were just a short number of notes and uh, and very you know bland passages, well the the time tracks are very much like that. They're they're kind of like sheet music, and e- if each moment of time produced its own symphony into the future, this is a snapshot of what that symphony would look like 
over the period of time we're interested in. The music of the spheres. In the case of these presidential candidates, who are mostly interested in, in 2016 and 17, or actually 2015, 16, and 17. So we would go back and we would run each of these presidential candidates from about 2014 going into 2015, and then we'd run it for about two and a half years out to about the spring or summer of 2017, and we would mostly pay attention to what's going on between now, so we're talking about the winter of 2016, and the spring, early summer of 2017, because that's when the maximum dynamic of activity would have to be going on for a candidate in order for them to become president. So we'd be looking for a high level of activity going on in the graph in that 12 to 14 or 15 month period uh, in each of them. Right. And when you do that, uh, it's easy to eliminate who's not going to become president because they either don't have any activity going on or they don't have any significant activity going on or it isn't going on during the particular period of time we're interested in and the one that they'd have to have going on in a high degree of activity in order to have the, to have the presidency presented to them as a nominee so if you take a look for instance at jeb bush you look at uh, scott walker you take you look at bobby jindal um, you look at at, at ted cruz uh, you don't see that kind of activity going on in the period between now, let's say, and the spring next year, when it would have to be going on in order for them to become president. Well, I've got, let's say, I've got uh, the time track for Jeb up here. Right. And there is some activity 2016, but well, why wouldn't there be? He's in the midst of a campaign. That's right. So 2016, 2017. Uh, but I mean, no it, significant activity. No, but... Uh, can we go to Trump here for a second? Because, you can go to Trump. Because what's interesting about Trump is there was tremendous activity. I mean, when is there not tremendous activity in that guy's life? There was tremendous activity to 2007, a, a real high point, uh, a flurry of activity in 2009. I'm not sure what that corresponds with in terms of his uh, – whether he was working a deal or whether it was uh, some – I'm not sure. But anyway, now we go to Trump, 2016. 2017, 2018, but then it drops off, Paul. Well, it's, it's intermittent even during the 2016-17 yes. period. Yes. It's not, that trend line is not consistent. No. But take a look at Bernie Sanders' time track during the period between 2015 and about 2018, let's say. Okay. Take a, take a look at the difference. All right. I'm going to open up Bernie Sanders. And let's see. Whoa. Okay. So 20, yes, now, 2016, now, 2017. Now, if you compare that even to Hillary's, it's far more dynamic on, on Bernie's. And when we first ran that, George and I kind of looked at each other and it was like, what the hell? George because Hart, your partner. We didn't imagine that there was a possibility that Hillary was not the anointed one. But then you have to, you have to realize something. Back in 2006, when we first started running uh, uh, Hillary Clinton's time track, um, we noticed that in 2008 and early 2009... She spiked. It, it, it wasn't, there was no consistent activity. 
in her run. And so back in 2006 and seven, when she was considered to be the anointed right. nominee, we went on the record as saying Hillary's either not going to be the nominee or if she gets the nomination, she's not going to win. And everybody thought we were crazy. Right. Okay. We ran Barack Obama, who's not on that list that you have, but we ran him. And there was an entirely different kind of activity pattern going on. So in 2008, we said Barack Obama is going to win. And then when everybody said he's never going to get a second term, we looked at it again and said he's going to, he's going to get a second term. And if you look at Hillary's in the period of time, let's say, that started maybe a year or so ago, there Nothing. isn't that consistent activity that I'm no. talking about. No. Uh, it, the consistent activity actually shows up on Lindsey Graham's chart, so we think Lindsey dropped out a little too soon, and on Carly Fiorina's chart, and on Bernie Sanders' chart, uh, to some extent on, on, uh, on uh, Mario... Uh, Marco uh, Rubio? Rubio's right. chart. Um, uh, uh, there's also a, a, a sort of disproportionate amount of activity uh, on a couple of the people who, who are, you know, who have already dropped out or aren't, aren't in the running anymore. But we boiled down the, the, the list of possible candidates to maybe three or four out of the 17 or 18 that were, that were, that were actually running. And we started posting a list in January of last year uh, on Facebook, you can, go, you can go look at it, the list was called Who's Not Going to Be President in 2016? And we had all these people listed, you know, all the, all the front runners, all the Scott Walkers and so on. They, if you look at Scott Walkers, same thing. There's no, no. significant activity in the period of time that we, we expected it. Well, you were on this program over a year ago, and at that time you said Hillary is not going to be the nominee, or if she is, she's not going to be president, because, again, no consistent activity. Right. Right. And it's too bad um, there's no legal way to bet on that. <laughs> we, we figured out in, in the 2006 and seven there was actually a, uh, a betting market being run out of, uh, out of Ireland, um, and uh, we could have gotten odds at the very beginning of a thousand to one odds that Hillary was not going to be president uh, in uh, in 2008. And if we put if we had put down a thousand dollars, just a thousand dollars, we would have walked away with I think it was a, I think it was a hundred thousand is what we would have walked away with because there was we, there was no chance she was going to become president, and we knew it. Um, and we were probably the only people on the planet who knew it. Because one of the neat things about these time tracks is that when they spell out the amount of activity that's going on, and again, I point out, activity doesn't mean good or bad. It just means busyness, level of busyness. Right. Okay. I should point out, Paul, that we've got the on our YouTube uh, live stream, our HOA here, our Hangout on Air, we have some of those, for those that are... Uh, catching the live stream, we have some of those time tracks up there as well. Well, that gives people a chance to see what we're talking yeah. about, because we ran all of these things. Originally, we ran most of them about a year ago. Um, and uh, some of them we ran even earlier than that, like Hillary's. Uh, Hillary's was probably run in 2014, and, and it's a rerun of the time track that we originally ran back uh, before the first uh, her first attempt 
at becoming president back in 2006. Well, this is something, this is interesting to me, that uh, that Hillary, uh, yes, she's behind in New Hampshire in terms of uh, her, her running against Sanders. Saunders. She's, uh, I think she's just narrowly ahead maybe or narrowly behind in Iowa by a point. It's a statistical insignificance. Uh, but overall, uh, nationally, uh, she's well ahead of, of Sanders. And so something is going to, to happen uh, between now and uh, we get going into the primary season that's going to prevent her. And some are saying, well, is it, are the FBI going to indict? But that should show up in the time track. Well, um, when, sometimes it shows up that way. If, if it knocked her out of, out of the running, uh, even, if it didn't, even if she didn't end up in jail, which is probably unlikely anyway, um, uh, the, what we would expect to find is a, is a higher degree of activity going on for her than we're actually seeing. And here's what we did to sort of verify this. If Hillary was going to become president, there'd be a couple of other things that would show up. Bill would have a lot of activity going on. Uh, Chelsea would have a lot of activity going on. Interesting, yes. The new grandchild would have a lot of activity going on, mm. and none of them do. Interesting, interesting. Okay. Uh, there, the, the, uh, on the other hand, and this is unfortunate probably in terms of world affairs, uh, Kim Jong-un has a lot of activity going on, and ISIS which George found a, a, a genesis date for of April 8th, 2013. How do you and arrive at that? How do you arrive at that the well, genesis date? What we were doing was, when we were, when we were on coast in the summer of 2013, um, George uh, Nori asked us about the likelihood of an uptick in domestic terrorism. Now, we had been on the record for several years, probably maybe as many as eight or ten, that there was no significant terrorism activity of the 9-11 sort or where there were significant numbers of people being murdered in hotels and so on, all the way through until about the summer of 2013. In the summer of 2013, using the 9-11 time track, the, uh, the time track for the actual uh, you know, and New York uh, uh, event, uh, we we started to see a, a much higher degree of activity going on than we had seen in the previous eight or ten years. So we said, and that was in the period, by the way, when the big when the big news story was uh, Ebola. Right. Uh, everybody was afraid we're going to all get Ebola. Uh, we said, no, Ebola is not going anywhere, but. Keep an eye out for a, a, a big uptick in domestic terrorism starting in the summer of 2013. And George went back and tracked the, the first news stories about ISIS or ISIL um, uh, that, that showed up. And they showed up in early April of 2013. So uh, he, he found a date that looked like it would be a, a good uh, beginning date for that of that event, and we started using that as a uh, as an example date for the for the likelihood of this group becoming, you know, getting a tremendous amount of attention uh, to the point where they were becoming a major news story. 
And using that April 8, 2013 starting moment, uh, we've been able to track uh, all of the large-scale um, uh, murderous activities of this group over the course of the last almost two years now. Um, and it's, um, it's remarkable. It's just remarkable. And when everybody said, oh, well, this, is just a te- this is just a temporary situation, I think even President Obama said this, these, these guys are like the, ju- the junior varsity. Um, uh, no, nay, nay. That's not what we're seeing at all. And we're seeing this, this uptick in, in, in uh, domestic terrorism probably going on for the next three to five years. So it's not something that's about to go away. It's something that's probably going to get more intense uh, over at least the next two or three years since they've been around now and in the news for a year and a half, two years already. And their lifespan in terms of long-term activity probably goes on for something like five or six years total. All right. So we're maybe a year and a half or two years into that five- to six-year window. Paul Garcio, futurist, founder of the Merlin Project, Merlin Project at gmail.com, projectmerlin.com, timetracks, T-R-A-K-S dot org, timetracks, T-R-A-K-S dot org. Back with more of our conversation. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Paul Garcio, good friend of the program, futurist, founder of the Merlin Project. And uh, I want to go back to the presidential time tracks for a moment, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll circle back and talk about ISIS and hopefully uh, North Korea, maybe Vladimir Putin, time permitting. But um, so just sort of in summary here, we're looking at these presidential time tracks. And again, people can go to coasttocoastam.com. And uh, just in the search engine at the top there, just put in presidential time tracks and look for the ones from Jan 2016. Uh, Bernie Sanders seems to have the best time track. And so... Oh, you noticed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what's going on here? Is, is there well, that, something that, that's going to that knock... Our, that was our question, too, Richard, when we saw that. We said, that can't be. You know, and 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 we honestly thought that this was just a just a mistake somehow, um, because we we didn't consider. Now, I I we we both knew who Bernie was, and we knew that Bernie was a little out there, um, and uh, and old, 
older than everybody else. And uh, an avowed socialist. And an avowed socialist. Um, exactly. And, you know, but who knew that this election was going to be one where the, the people who are out there, mostly out there, are the ones that are running ahead of everybody else. All of the, all of the centrist candidates, you know, all of them are basically, you know, in single digits, except for, except for, the, for the Donald Trumps and the Bernie Sanders and the Ted Cruz's. And basically everybody, all the people we would have expected, like, like uh, uh, Jeb Bush, uh, to be outdistancing everybody ju- just on the sheer strength of the amount of money that they've spent. Right. Um, that alone should have done it. It usually does. You know, I'm sure this is spooking the Koch brothers something awful because, you know, when you have, when you have somebody like Donald Trump who's pulling in these kinds of, of polling numbers... And not really spending anything. No, this I mean, is historic. This is all free publicity. This is absolutely okay. historic. And one of the things that people forget about Trump, they say, oh, the guy's crazy. He's just a, a showboat. You know, P.T. Barnum of our current era. Donald Trump ran a primetime, you know, Emmy-winning, top-rated national uh a reality show for years, and most of it was ad-libbed. It wasn't even scripted. Donald was out there, you know, playing it fast and loose, okay? Um, he even, at one point I hear, he even tried to uh, copyright or register the term, you're fired, <laughs> okay? Now, what we're watching effectively in this election year is a political version of The Apprentice. I mean, that's what's going on. And, and people forget, this guy was a very successful television performer. Right. And we live on television these days. Yes, but and his time track doesn't, doesn't look like he's going anywhere either. Well, it doesn't look like he's going to become president. No, no, no. no. So, what uh, is there? Something else? Uh, is there a is there a time track for something else that would would be responsible for the boost in Bernie Sanders? Is there well, something I, in the economy I, I that's coming Bernie, down? I think what's going on with Bernie is that Bernie is saying, in a much more intelligent fashion and less crazy, is saying the same kinds of things. That Donald is saying, except with some degree of intelligence connected to them. I mean, Bernie's suggestions about what would fly politically, what we need to be doing politically, uh, it makes a lot more sense and is a lot more out there than any of the candidates around him. So, in other words, like Trump, he's saying things that nobody's been willing to say. Uh, the only difference is. That what he's saying is 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 reaching the the the, the potential voters out there uh, who are hearing it with very different ears, and consequently they're saying, you know, this guy might be the guy to actually pay attention to because he sounds like he might have had some actual solutions. Now Trump is saying things that people wish they were able to say, but don't. And it's 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 really out there sort of stuff like, you know, no more 
Muslims allowed in the country and it's stuff like that. You, you know, anybody who's looked into any of that realizes that the likelihood of being able to actually do any of that is practically nil. What Bernie is saying isn't. It's, it's very practical stuff that really needs to be talked to, like free college education for everybody, like a kind of national version of, of the Medicare. Well, I'm just wondering, uh, so, though, we're coming up on a break here, but I'm wondering if there is some economic cataclysm coming this way which might give that boost that's, that doesn't seem to be there right now for Sanders. But obviously, according to these time tracks, something is going to happen to push him to the forefront. I don't know that it's his message because he's been saying that message now for, for months and months and months. He's still behind Hillary. Something must be ready to break that's going to give him that boost that the the time tracks indicate. We'll uh, discuss on the other side. Paul Gersio, The Merlin Project. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, time tracks for Bernie Sanders, looking good. Hillary, not so good. Donald Trump, not going to get past the post. And, well, here's something interesting. Uh, Chris Christie, actually, the time tracks look pretty interesting for him, too, uh, around this period. I don't know what... Uh, right, and if he wasn't involved in in the fallout from this Bridgegate thing that happens in Manhattan and uh, Jersey, uh, he probably would be stumbling the way he has... And, and done a whole lot better. Uh, yes, Chris Christie and other people who we don't have listed there. I don't think uh, Andy Cuomo is listed, uh, but if he is, if you take a look at Andy Cuomo's run and then you compare that to Chris Christie's and you compare that to to uh, Bernie Sanders and, and even Carly Fiorina, uh, you'll actually see some time tracks that look like people who are going to end up emerging as the nominee and or the president uh, over the next couple of years. And I know that Mike Bloomberg is thinking of running. As Dr. Hart said last night, he ought to enjoy his uh, retirement and, and, and go back to worrying about who, who got a big gulp and who didn't. Uh, <laughs> because he's, this, this ain't the time for Mike. Mike's time came along in probably 08, and he decided not to run because he didn't want to spoil the chances of the first African-American or the first woman running for president, which is why he decided not to pursue that in, in 08. But that was, that was when Bloomberg had a serious chance, not in the period of time coming up. So, right. for instance, with all the money he has, if he decides to run, he's just wasting his money. It's not going anywhere. Okay, so getting back to you know why the time tracks for Sanders look so good, and I'm wondering if there is some cataclysmic event 
economically speaking, coming. Do, I mean, do, if you want to do a time track on the economy, what do you use as the genesis, the birth of the, the New York Stock Exchange or the uh, NASDAQ? You can do a lot of things. You can do when we went, when we went off the gold standard, you can, you can look at the federal, uh, uh, the, the Fed, you can look at, uh, uh, I mean, you can, you can look at the, the, the Great Depression. Um, there's a lot of things you can look at to, to try and gauge the economy. Uh, Dr. Hart is, is convinced that we're headed for, for another crash uh, over this next couple of years. And part of it is, you know, is appearing on the, on the uh, horizon now between what's going on in China and their losses. Right. The fact that they own so much of our debt, and also the fact that in the the oil companies, having having financed a lot of their uh, their fracking activities and others uh, over the last couple of years, because the cost of oil was was up, you know, you know, in the hundred and fifty dollar better a barrel category. Now it's down under. Thirty dollars, and those companies, uh, along for that matter, with perhaps the the, uh, the Saudi Arabians, who we all thought had more money than God, uh, have actually been hedging their bets, uh, and might very well we might very well find them in a situation where they're trying to make up for the fact that uh, that they've they've gone in the hole as far as their their oil distribution is concerned. By trying to sell it and and still beat everybody to the you know to the to the pump, um, and the, the problem being that you know it, it may be very good for us that we're now paying you know under two dollars a gallon for oil. Uh, I mean it's certainly nice. It's a lot better than nearly four dollars, but what it's doing to the to the industry. Is going to have a marked effect on us over this next, say, 24 months or so, and George is very worried about that. And that could be the beginning of, a, of another serious recession or crash. So yes, that could easily stimulate something like Bernie, because Bernie's been saying, you know, there's no such thing as as too big to fail. Um, and uh, he could gain a tremendous number of followers over the course of the next 12 months if George is right about the financial situation we're in. And Hillary basically has been collecting money from Wall Street and supporting those people uh, largely uh, politically and is not going to be in a, in a position to suggest that she's the right person to, to be dealing with them or policing them in some way. So that would really only put Bernie as the person to look to as a possible, you know, uh, salvation for what's going on financially. Uh, so it, it's entirely possible that over this next 12 months, Bernie's going to get a, 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 a tremendous afterburner going on in terms of what's going on in the economy, because none of these other uh, candidates, potential candidates, are seriously talking about that at all. Well, uh, if the, well, according to these time tracks, it, it it looks like Bernie Sanders is in the White House. Then, well, I would, you know, I would never have guessed that that were possible. But you know, 
after Barack Obama, I suppose anything's possible. Right. Because right. we wouldn't have had Barack Obama if we hadn't previously had George W. Bush. The only reason that Barack Obama got anywhere in terms of traction was because so many people were so fed up with what was going on with, with, with Bush and Cheney that they ran in the other direction. And they, and they kept running. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't know when to stop. It's one of the reasons why Hillary didn't win in 2008, because Obama seemed looked like salvation from what had been going on in the previous uh, seven or eight years. So, I mean, you know, one of the things that people forget is that both Bush and Cheney, were they to visit a number of foreign countries these days, they could get arrested for war crimes. That's right. That's right. Okay. And so they haven't left here. Bush hasn't ventured out of the country. Cheney hasn't ventured out of the country. And it's because in certain countries, both in the, in the, uh, in the EU and also in the Scandinavia and so on, if they were to show up there, they could find themselves in jail. So, you know, people completely forget that, uh, but that's, uh, you know, but that's actually true. Uh, just a few moments remaining, Paul. Can we talk a little bit about uh, Vladimir Putin, who has his time tracks very, very active, 2013, 14, 15, 16, a little bit in 17, and then things start to quiet down for him? Well, I think it's kind of obvious that, that Putin has been doing his level-headed best, or maybe not so level-headed, but best to bring back elements of the old Soviet Union. Um, and he's been reasonably successful at it the last couple of years. Um, uh, Putin is going to, Putin, like uh, Kim Jong-un uh, and a number of, uh, a number of other uh, players uh, out in the, uh, in the ether, uh, are, are likely to be real problem people over the course of the next three to five years. Uh, uh, and and that's not going to be a happy, you know, uh, world situation either when you've got some of these other issues going on. Uh, so this is going to be a, this is, we're probably moving into a very rocky couple of years. And uh, we can see it to some extent in the craziness that's going on in the American elections. This kind of thing has effectively never happened before. What we're seeing in terms of who the front runners are and whatnot, are the people who really have n no serious background, couldn't quote you even in passages from the Constitution. Okay, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy that that's going on, but it is. And one of the reasons why it is, is because the American public is sick and tired of being lied to or not being told the whole story. Uh, and that's, 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 Part of the reason you're seeing people like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders leading the parade. So uh, we, we're not we're really not surprised that that's going on in the long run. And we think that that, that given the circumstances that are in place now, we're liable to see Bernie running against Trump in the final analysis. Um, and Hillary is liable to hiccup somewhere along the way. Uh, because my God, she's a, she's a Clinton for one thing, and secondly, she's she's been hiding stuff on and off for years, and it's it's 
probably going to catch up to her. Well, the noose is tightening. There's no question. Uh, oh. According to one uh, attorney, former attorney general, I believe in the state of Virginia, who has inside information, uh, the FBI is ready to indict, and then it'll be up to uh, U.S. Attorney General Lynch. That'll put her in a pre- precarious predicament. Uh, obviously, Obama would like to see uh, Hillary get in. I know they have their differences with the Clintons, but uh, if Lynch refuses to prosecute or to indict, rather, uh, I mean, we could have. Uh, uh, it could be this. Would, this would make Watergate look like a walk in the park, basically. It would probably would. It would certainly make the Clinton impeachment period a, 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 like a walk in the park. You know, one of the things we didn't get a chance to mention, and, and I probably should drop it in now before we run out of time, <clears throat> is the fact that. Ever since 2012, and this has never been true before, but ever since 2012, anyone out there listening who has a smartphone, so we're talking about Android, Google Play, Android phones, or Apple, uh, you know, the Apple, say, 6X, uh, 6S, for instance, or any of the earlier models, there is a icon on your phone on the home page for buying apps. If you go to that app store icon on your on your Google phone uh, to to Google Play or on your Apple phone to the app store, you can buy this time track program that we're talking about. Um, and run it on your own phone for a week for less than the cost of a cup of coffee. For 99 cents, you can get this time track app on your phone for a week and see if what we're talking about is really true. And then you can punch in your own Genesis events. You can run run your own birthday. You can run when you started your job or the day you you met your wife or uh, the birthdays of your kids. You can run dates like when you open a 401k and, and uh, what's going on with your finances. Uh, if you're looking to sell a house, you can look up the date that you bought it and closed on it and see if this is an appropriate moment to try and sell that house or find a date in the future when the activity profile is sufficiently active that you could put that house out on the market and actually have a buyer we, we can't, I can't tell you who this is, but a major player at Coast to Coast uh, put their house on the market based on a Merlin time track and had a buyer the next day. There you go. And, uh, they, haven't, and they haven't been able to move this thing for six months. All right. So the app, and uh, they can get that at timetracks.org? No, they can get it on their phone. They just have to find the icon for for ah. uh, for the apps. Just go to your app store. Phone. Just go to your app store. There you go. That's right. Paul, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. You're welcome, Richard, and uh, good to talk to you and look forward to doing it again. Likewise. Paul Gersio, The Merlin Project. Albert, thank you. Uh, Ian and Jamie, thank you. Back next week with a brand new program. Good night.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.